You, you can uh, be seated. Amen. We are um, looking at uh, the last part of Romans 15 this morning. It's, it's interesting. You think, you know there are certain parts of Romans, as a minister, you know there are certain parts of Romans that you could preach, I don't know, a hundred sermons on. There are parts of Romans that you think you couldn't until you start to study them. And then you realize that I think every part of the Bible, honestly, we could uh, spend months and months and years in. We're going to look this morning at a section of Romans that uh, I, I, I partly wish we could spend a lot longer in um, because we're going to have to leave some things unsaid, but um, Lord willing, there will be a next time, right? Let's, uh, let's pray, and then we're going to read together Romans 15, verses 17 to 33. Let's pray together. Lord, for us to, to take this book, these words, into our hands, onto our lips, to, to have the very words of God sound in our ears, and we pray by your Spirit, penetrate down into our hearts and change our lives. What a blessed and sacred thing this is. Lord, would you please use your word? Would you please wield it in your hand, Holy Spirit? That we would be, every, every one of us in this room, would be operated on by you. That not, not one of us would, would be hardened to the sword of the Spirit, which is a two-edged sword able to pierce and to divide soul, uh, bone and marrow, and uh, to divide and discern and expose the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Lord, we pray that you would have your way with us by your word. We thank you for it. We thank you for the Apostle Paul, who, by the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote these words, and we ask that you would use them not only in individually in each of our lives, but that you would use this word in, in this body, in this church, uh, for great good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 15, verses uh, 17 through 33, we'll really just focus uh, beginning with verse 22, uh, but uh, we'll back up to verse 17 for some context. All right, let's give our careful attention to God's Word. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. 
At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Well, we've been studying Romans now for 15 months. I counted this week. This is the 53rd sermon from Romans. We've got three to go. And we have, I I hope that all of you have had a sense of this, a really strong sense of this. We've been really at the feast. Uh, Rich food, the rich food of the gospel that is laid out for us here uh, in this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. What we have begun to see since we hit the 12th chapter and what we've been emphasizing each week is that as Paul turns from Romans 11 into Romans 12 and then on into the rest of the letter, that what he intends the church in Rome to see and what the Spirit intends for us to see and for the church always to see is that this, all this rich doctrine of Romans 1 through 11 is intended to lead us on as God's people into holy living and into missionary zeal to the ends of the earth. That's what the first 11 chapters of Romans are intended to do. Paul Paul is striving for the gospel. That's why I've called the sermon, striving together for the sake of the gospel. Paul has been saying, here is my gospel. I want you to know what I've been preaching. I want you to know uh, what it is that is the good news of Jesus Christ because I'm coming your way and I want you to link up with me and partner with me and help me because I need to go to Spain and preach this gospel because they've not heard it there. So really, in, a, in one sense, Romans is a, just an unbelievable missionary support letter. Uh, you can't plagiarize it. It's too well known. And there's deeper problems than that, I guess. But it's a missionary support letter. Paul has been building this platform on which he could stand and articulate to them this unbelievable mission to go to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel so that people would hear it and believe it and be saved. Apart from hearing it, there's no belief. Apart from preaching it, there's no hearing it. Apart from sending, there's no preaching. And so Paul wants them to partner with him in his mission to Spain. Now, we we need to understand that at her best, at her best, the church has always kept these things together. Deep, solid theology and vigorous, robust, passionate, zealous missionary activity. The church, at her best, has always held these things together. 
Because if Jesus Christ is the Son of God, as we have worshipped Him this morning, if He's the only Savior of sinners, if we are sinners in need of salvation that we can't work for ourselves, then the flag of the gospel needs to be planted all around the world. It needs to be planted everywhere we go so that everyone will hear the good news that Jesus has lived, Jesus has died, Jesus has been raised for sinners, and that by believing we can have life in His name. So that's what Paul's after. He's moving us toward the ends of the earth. He's moving us into missionary activity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean, I understand this, that doesn't mean that everyone is called into the ministry. That doesn't mean that that call, as it comes to you by God, takes exactly the same shape in every one of you. It's part of the beauty of the church, is that there's a shape in your life, there's a shape about this calling in your life that is particular to you, and God uses all of that and knits it together in one to form the body of Christ, which is His, his witness in this world. It's just marvelous, isn't it, how God has, has put that together? So I understand that it doesn't mean that you're all called to the ministry. Now, it very well might mean that some of you are. And that may sound exciting to you now, or you may want to slip out the back door real quick. But this very well may mean that some of you are called to the ministry, are called to preach and teach and go and proclaim the good news. But what it certainly means is that we do not exist for ourselves that the gospel is not our possession to hoard, that the gifts that Christ gives are not ours to be just grasped onto for ourselves, but that who we are and who God is and what He's done and what He's said about all of that is given to us that we might announce it to the world, that we might live it out, believe it, love it, and and pronounce it to the world. Now, what I want to ask is, as we read from Isaiah 11 a minute ago, And we read this wonderful passage about how on the day of the Lord when Christ returns and and all that he's begun in terms of recreating his people and his world, when all of that is perfectly complete, and as the scriptures say, the earth is full of the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Every believer longs for that day. Don't you long for that day? And Isaiah is showing to us this vision of of that day when all of the earth will, will flood to Christ's feet and will worship Him. When all, that, all of those that God has chosen, all of His redeemed people, well, that's the mission that God's on now. That's what God is doing. He's bringing everything under Christ's feet. Here's the question. Are we as His people working in the same direction as our God? Are we as His people joining with Him, giving ourselves to this great church-building, kingdom-establishing, gospel-proclaiming work. That's what Paul's calling us to here in Romans 15. So our question for the day is, what then does it look like to strive together, to strive together in the work of the gospel? What does that look like? And I, I want to just point out two things from this text. The first is that it looks like, as we see in Paul's life and as we see it developing in our own life, we see that this striving together for the sake of the gospel looks like a holy ambition that drives every bit of our life together and every bit of each of our lives individually. A holy ambition that drives our lives 
That's one of the things you see uh, at work here in Paul's life. Back in verse 20, he talks about his ambition to preach the gospel where it hasn't been named. Now, interestingly, and this is a key point, that ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known is what had kept him from Rome all these years. He's been saying to them, I've longed for years to come see you. Paul hasn't been to Rome. He hasn't been able to witness with his own eyes what Christ has done through the gospel in the center of the pagan world. The Roman Empire has been invaded by Jesus Christ. The gospel has been preached. It's been believed. The church is flourishing and growing, and Paul is dying to get there. But it's his ambition to preach the gospel as an apostle of Jesus Christ that has kept him from doing that which he wants to do. But it's also that same ambition that now is moving him toward Rome, finally. And then through Rome on to Spain. The the point just simply is this. Paul had such a clear view of his calling as an apostle of Jesus Christ that his holy ambition, his God-honoring obsession, ambition in life is to make Christ known and nothing would swerve him to the right or to the left of that. Not his desires, but God's desires. Not his plans, but God's plans. To the point where Paul was able and willing to say, I want this, I want to see you, a good desire in and of itself, but God has called me to labor for him. And so you see this holy ambition being worked out in Paul's life so that his natural desires, his natural tendencies were harnessed by the love of Jesus Christ. We see that ambition has kept him from traveling to Rome. You see what he says in verses 19 and 22, that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So literally, he just says, I I have fulfilled the gospel of Christ. And he goes on in verse 22 and says, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. So he'd been hindered from Rome because he had all this pioneering uh, missionary work to do, and he tells us something about the region where he'd been. And if you're anything like me, without some study, without looking into this, these, this, this arc from Jerusalem to Illyricum, probably in your mind, is not all that clear. So I want to try to make it clear for you, because <laughs> I think it's important for us to appreciate. What Paul is saying is he had, he had and this is going to be backwards to you, but I, I'll try to reverse it. Okay, this, I'll, do it. I'll reverse it for myself so it won't be backwards for you. He's saying from, from Jerusalem all the way down here, he's traveled up through Syria, all the way up north into Turkey, what we would call Turkey now, and he's moved west all the way across Turkey, and he's gotten to the Aegean Sea, and he's crossed the Aegean Sea, and he's gone into Greece, and he's gone up, uh, up north into Greece, and he's even gotten up close to what we would recognize on the map now as, as uh, the former Yugoslavia, as Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh, over even towards um, uh, Bulgaria, close, not quite there, and then all the way back down to Jerusalem. Now, I did my best to kind of map that out, and it's about a 2,700-mile perimeter that over a course of about 20 years at the point of his writing Romans, he's been traveling, not once, but many times, multiple times, at least three times, officially, formally, in his missionary journeys, he's traveled this this territory, and he's moved about it differently, slightly each time, 
And he's been every time planting churches in these key centers throughout that region, planting churches, preaching, teaching, training. The kingdom of God is on display. The church is being born. And, you know, of course there were still people to evangelize, but Paul says, I've fulfilled the gospel in this region. There's no work left for me here, he says. And that's because of his method. His method was not was as a pioneer evangelist to go and, and put these churches in these centers, these urban centers, and then it kind of begins to grow out and fill in with men like Timothy and, and Titus and others. And he had done all of this at immense personal cost. We read in 2 Corinthians, it meant shipwrecks and beatings and floggings and persecutions. But you see, the point is, there is this holy ambition to preach Jesus Christ that consumed Paul. It had absorbed him. It had taken him completely custody. It was who he was, and it was what he did. Now, I understand that you're not an apostle, and neither am I. None of us are. But let's not make the mistake of thinking that somehow the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ ought to grab hold of us less than it did of Paul. Because you see, even even after he had done all of his work, he doesn't say, whoa, boy, I've been at it pretty hard here for the last 20 years. Um, I've been sailing by all these nice beaches in the Mediterranean. I deserve a break. What's Paul say? I mean, he says to himself, obviously, he says, Lord, what, what next? Where's the next place I can go? And he's got his mind, and we don't know exactly how he's arrived at it, but he's got his mind, and his heart is set on Spain. So much that as much as he wants to go to Rome, he's just going to pass through, be refreshed, enjoy his fellowship with his brothers and sisters, and he's on his way to, to Spain. Why? Because they don't know Christ there. He's not been proclaimed. There's no post for ministry And so this ambition is driving him there. Now let's take this and apply it to our own lives before we move on in this text. I think a great question to ask yourself, and I wonder if it's a question, I wonder how often we ask ourselves this question. You look at a situation in life, you look at a job opportunity, you look at a a family decision that you're facing, you, you, you fill in whatever it is, and you ask this question, If I choose this, or if I choose this, which one will help me better to serve Jesus Christ? And how often we just get pressed into, remember what Paul said in Romans 12, don't get pressed into the the mindset of the world. We get pressed into the mindset of the world and we become seduced. We become attracted and drawn by things that will not last Greater wealth, greater comfort, greater pleasure, greater leisure. And yet Paul, even after all that he's been through, all that he's given of himself, he's asking, Lord, what can I do? What can I do to serve Jesus Christ? I was encouraged this week as I was thinking about some of you here in this church that I know of who have made career decisions that have cost you money on purpose so that it would free you from ministry in the kingdom of God. That's encouraging to me. That's, that's, that's embo- that emboldens me. But those are the kind of decisions that Paul is making here and that I think are, are pressed in, right in front of our eyes. If, if, if we really believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, if really it's all on the line as, as the scriptures say it is, 
then the question is, will this help me? Will this propel me in the service of Jesus Christ? Will this help me to be a sharper tool in his hand? I bet some of you know John Calvin's life prayer. He said, I offer my heart to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. Can you offer that prayer to the Lord? Are you offering, I mean, even if in your own words, is that the way you're offering yourself to the Lord? Will you? Will you offer yourself to him that way? I wonder what he would, I wonder what he would do with you. I wonder what he would do, what he would continue to do with us. If the prayer of our congregation collectively and consistently was, Lord, I'm yours. Do with me what you will. I'm yours promptly and sincerely. No holding back, no reservations. Well, I wonder what opportunities God has given you to serve him. So don't think for now about the exotic. Maybe God's calling you some of, some of you to something exotic. But I wonder what opportunities God's put in your life now. He's, he's ordained all the situations of your life, all the relationships that you have, everything that happens in your life, everywhere it happens, everyone with whom it happens. God's ordained all of that and is equipping you to serve him in the midst of it. So you would humbly, lovingly take the truth into those situations, right? For some of you, that's maybe not any farther than the end of your driveway, the end of your street, the end of your commute to work, to campus, wherever it might be. But to begin to think, what are those opportunities that God's put in front of me to honor Jesus Christ, to serve Him? And as you're faithful with those, God will give you more opportunities to be faithful. Greater opportunities will be entrusted to you. But I wonder if some of you are are beginning to think, "I, I haven't been thinking this way and I don't know how to begin. And I think perhaps for all of us, we simply need to remember that, that the, what will drive us in that kind of life is a vision of Jesus Christ, His grace, His glory, His greatness that we will only get as we come face to face with Him in His Word. In other words, as we really soak in all that Paul's been teaching us in Romans to this point, and what we find begins to happen is our hearts just become captive captive to the glory of Christ, as Paul's was, so that he could not do anything else but what he did. You see, the point is not, you should go do more for Jesus. The would that we all would do more for Jesus, don't hear me wrong. But we do little for Jesus because we think little of Jesus. But the reverse is true, brothers and sisters. As as our view of God enlarges by the Spirit's work in our hearts, then our desire to serve enlarges. And so that's what Paul is pressing home to his friends here in Rome. And then very quickly, this same holy ambition that keeps him from Rome then drives him to Rome and skip on to Spain, which, by the way, we don't know if he ever got there. But this same ambition causes him to take this very strange detour. Now, it's not strange if you don't have your geography 
which, again, my geography is terrible. I'm grateful for maps. Paul is in Corinth writing this. He's in Greece. Okay? Let me, I'll reverse it again for you. He's in Greece. He wants to go to Rome. It's here. And then Spain. But first he's going to go where? Jerusalem. He's adding about 2,000 miles to his trip. He's going in exactly the wrong way. In order to get to where he is burning to get, which is Rome and then Spain, why is he willing to derail his mission to Spain? Why is he willing to put off even longer his visit to Rome? And by the way, this decision makes it three more years before he gets to Rome. Well, Paul goes to Jerusalem for three reasons. You see, well, background first. There are, there's extreme poverty in Jerusalem at the time. And yet the believers in, in Greece have, out of their own poverty, given abundantly. You read about this in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. They have given generously so that that gift could be carried to Jerusalem to relieve the needs of, the, of their brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. Paul is going to take that offering himself. He's just been collecting it as he's come, as he's traveled, and he's going to finish collecting it and take it himself to Jerusalem. Why? Why not give that to some faithful deacon? Why not give that to one of his colleagues? Doesn't he need to go to Spain? Well, Paul does it for three reasons. He understands that Christians are obligated to care for the poor. It's actually a hallmark of his ministry. We see it in Galatians 2. He's eager to care for the poor. We see in in Acts 11, about 10 years earlier than this, he had made a trip to Jerusalem for the very same thing, to deliver gifts to the poor there. Paul saw it as so crucial to the life of the church that he was persuaded that he needed to make this trip. He needed to deliver this gift himself. And we find him saying very explicitly in Galatians 6 that the church has an obligation to care for the poor both inside and outside the church, but especially those who are of the household of faith, especially poor brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And Paul, in order to press home this point, is willing at great cost to himself to take that gift himself in order to say This is from your brothers and sisters who love you, who care for you. They want to give this to you. Secondly, Paul goes because he's eager to promote humility and unity in the church. It's significant very quickly. This gift is coming from Greeks, Greek Christians, to Jewish Christians. Paul's been talking a lot about that in Romans. And Paul himself wants to seal that deal, so to speak, and say, I have brought to you a gift of love and sacrifice and generosity from your Gentile brothers in the Lord. And that's why he actually asks the church to pray that it will be well received. In other words, pray that the believers in Jerusalem won't reject it because they're Gentiles. And so Paul's eager to promote this humility and unity in the church. Let me ask this question. It's a rhetorical question. Is there any room whatsoever for pride in the church? For self-assertion? 
what Paul's driving home, what we need to take from this is that whatever you have, it came from God and he gave it to you so that you would bless others with it. And then thirdly, Paul, this is, I think, amazing. It's wonderful. Paul goes to Jerusalem. He goes all this way, a thousand miles down to the east in order to then go 1,400 miles back across up to Rome because he believes that by doing so, it will cause more praise to go to God. That, friends, is amazing. That's convicting to me. That what drove Paul to do that with no thought at all was, he said, Macedonia, this is in verses 26 and 27, Macedonia and Achaia, Achaia, have been pleased to make some contribution to the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. And then in 2 Corinthians 9, here's what Paul tells us. He says that by their approval of this service, in other words, as the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem receive this gift, here's what they will do. They will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ. What Paul is saying is, I want to deliver this gift because I can't wait to hear the praise that comes from the church when I get there. Because they will say, how great is the Lord that this generosity has resulted from the Gentiles believing in the gospel. And so Paul goes because he knows it will echo to God's praise. Let me ask us this question. What could you do that would cause people to praise God? Maybe more specifically, how could you, how could we, through generosity, put the power of the gospel on display? Well, for all of this, and we've got we to wrap this up, but for all of this, what we see in Paul and where I, I hope this brings us is to a point of earnest dependence. The first thing that characterizes striving together for the sake of the gospel is this holy ambition that drives us for the glory of Christ. The second is earnest dependence. Look at where Paul ends up at the end of this chapter. Here's the great apostle. Here's the one who's planted all these churches around this, around this part of the world, this great apostle. And where does he come to? Please, 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 I beg you, pray for me. And he asks them to pray that God will deliver him from his enemies in Jerusalem. He asks them to pray that his gift will be accepted by the saints. And he asks that by God's will he'd be able to come to them in Rome and be refreshed. Now I think just two things I want to point out before before we stop and come to the Lord's table. Isn't it interesting how God answers prayer? God answered Paul's prayers. He answered the prayers of the saints for him. God did deliver him from the unbelievers in Jerusalem. Twice they tried to kill him, at least. You remember once they tried to grab him and and stone him? The other time there was a secret plot to ambush him and kill him. Both times the Lord delivered him. But of course in the end, God delivered him into their hands. And they arrested him, and they imprisoned him. And for two years, he was in the area right around Jerusalem, imprisoned. Did God answer his prayer to go to Rome? Another yes, but. Yes, but he went in chains. Yes, but he went three years later than he thought he would. 
Yes, but he was imprisoned before he could go. Yes, but he was shipwrecked on the way. Yes, but the Lord delivered him to Rome. And when he got there, you remember how the book of Acts ends? For two years, in this house that he was free to rent, chained to one guard, people coming and going as much as anybody wanted, there Paul taught the kingdom of God and preached Jesus Christ unhindered for two years. And he wrote letters like Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. You ever wonder if God's answering your prayers? Is God wiser than you are? Is he always working out his purposes? Will it sometimes hurt? But will he always, without fail, will he always answer your prayers and bless your work for him and the Lord in a way that will exalt Jesus? You bet he will. Second thing, very simply, Paul understood. Please understand this. The ministry of the word of God depends on the prayers of the people of God. Paul knew that he could not go and do what he was called to do unless they were striving. It's a word for energetically toiling and persisting and wrestling. You do that. We do that together. And we will watch and see what God in his own wisdom will do for his name here in Athens. What he will do, who knows where around the world. But that's exactly what the gospel calls us to. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that for this great calling, you would root us in the great gospel. That you would fix our eyes on Christ, even now as we come to the table. Feed us and nourish us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.